This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm joined, as always, uh, by Carl Truman. And Carl, I hope I'm not spilling the beans here or or anything, but can I now um, refer to you as as an American? Uh, technically, yes. I guess that that would be a technically true <laughs> statement. Um, so, so spiritually, so, emotionally, <laughs> less true. It has to be said. Since it's technically true, it's true. Yeah. Well, in a technical sense, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the, I, the real problem is I now have a vote. Good grief! Who wants right. a vote in the current climate? Well, that's true. It's it's challenging, but um, yeah. I have a feeling this hasn't become widely known, and I I want it announced here. I want the official coming out party yeah. for you. Uh, to be here, all Carl three of Truman. our listeners now know that I'm an American citizen. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Truman, my fellow American. There's something yeah, just really yeah. satisfying about that. Yeah, I, it's it's odd in class. I keep referring to you Americans and having to adjust and say, "Well, I suppose I'm sort of involved now, but exactly. I'm talking culturally, not uh, not uh-huh. in terms of passport." Well, can, can you enlighten us <laughs> as to what? Uh, finally pushed you over the cliff. Were they getting ready to kick you out? Or well, uh, it, we were coming up to have to renew my green card yeah. to get my third green card. And the issue really is there are two two for one. It says it costs as much to get a new green card as to become a citizen that you pretty mm-hmm. much automatically qualify for if you've held a green right. card for five years more. And secondly, I'd been told that border crossing starts to become even more unpleasant than it already is okay. when you have your third green card because mm-hmm. uh, the – uh, the the sophisticated gentlemen who man the uh, passport controls at our airports uh, want to know why you've been in the country for so long but haven't actually committed to it. A lot of us were wondering about that. So yeah, yeah. and my my youngest son as well became a citizen before me, and that sort of mm-hmm. tripped me, saying, "Okay, if it's pretty straightforward, let's just do it." And I, I passed yeah. the civics test. Oh, there uh, you go. You know, 435 members of uh, the House of Representatives, etc., etc., etc. So now we just we need to get you a a pocket constitution. Oh no, they give you one of those. Oh, very uh, good. You get this welcome packet okay. with a nice letter from President Biden welcoming me to the country <laughs> and uh, and a pocket constitution uh, application right. for a passport mm-hmm. um, voucher for cheese whiz. Nice. Uh, my, my big fear. When I became an American, I said to myself, will I start dressing like a slob and liking cheese whiz? Those were my big concerns. But so far, I seem to have remained, please, no. 
<laughs> all I can say is that the listeners should be glad this is not a YouTube video. Todd is wearing, what is that, a muscle shirt or it, something? It's a sleeveless T-shirt. I'm at home. It was my day off. Oh, gosh. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. well I'm... In a in a gesture towards casualness, I did take my tie off when that's, I came back from. That's good. That's very good. Oh dear, they shouldn't make <laughs> shirts without sleeves. I think. They sh- they they absolutely should make shirts without sleeves. Now, I, it, you know, I don't go out like this. I mean, I don't want to be a distraction. Uh, but uh, you know, around the home, and I'm 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 quite sure my well, wife appreciates it. You're distracting me. Uh, that's all I'll say. <laughs> I, I'm going to switch off the video at this point. <laughs> well, uh, folks out there, I will say he already has a pair of cowboy boots. Um, so that's good. I have three um, but, pairs of cowboy boots, including a dress pair for smart occasions. Wow. Wow, that's okay. That's impressive. That's impressive. Now we just need yep. to get you a uh, a MAGA cap, and uh, <laughs> the ensemble will be complete. So that's that's yes, good. Yes. Yeah. Well, we actually do have a a serious and a sobering topic to discuss today. Our our listeners are well aware of the tragic, really truly evil events which occurred in Nashville on Monday, March twenty seventh, which, as we record this, was just last Monday. Uh, Six people, three children, and three adults at the Covenant School uh, in Nashville were murdered by a 28-year-old former student of that school. Now, the Covenant School, as I'm sure all of you know, is is the Christian school operated by Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. And, of course, the news shocked the nation. It uh, it grieved uh, Christians across the nation. Um, And the news kind of set off a firestorm of controversy because it was established early on that the shooter was a female who identified as a male. And this isn't really what we're going to spend a great deal of time about time on in in our time remaining, but it does deserve a moment to reflect on just how political matters of, uh, you know, matters of sexuality and gender, just how political those matters have, have become. And of course, Carl, you've written, about this quite a bit. The media were were hard pressed to identify the shooter as as a male, which in ordinary circumstances, Carl, would be a, a you know kind of a no no, a so called misgendering of the of the shooter. Um, and there were also kind of those very tone deaf statements from the White House stating uh, solidarity with the trans community and lamenting uh, violence against transgender persons. While there was a a conspicuous lack of any words of support for the Christian community or laments over violence against Christians. Carl, what did you make of some of that? Yeah, I thought it was a very uh, revelatory moment, actually, in our current yeah. cultural situation. I, I am very hesitant to make any political capital out of yes. out of a tragedy like that. But I do think the the news reporting revealed a lot about the priorities of our mm-hmm. current uh, news media and reflected uh, well gave significant insight into the values of of the people who uh, presume to to govern the United States of America so I thought it was I was trying to think that if I was a parent of one of those children clearly it, nothing can bring any consolation yeah but there were one or two news reports I watched and uh, and, and a few articles I read, and one was left wondering, who are the real victims right. here? Uh, I think it would have been good to have had 
more compassion uh, focused by the news media on the victims. Clearly, you don't want a backlash against any perceived community out of which this person emerged. We, you really don't want that. And, and I suspect that could have been a real danger. Yeah. But it was not the primary issue, and it was not the primary danger. The primary issue uh, was the, the murder of uh, school children and school employees. And the primary danger, I think, was copycat killings, copycat shootings at other schools, maybe not just Christian, but other schools in general. And I think to have seen a little more in the media uh, focusing on that mm-hmm. would, I think, have been reassuring is the wrong word. But I think would at least have indicated that we live in a country which still has a broadly speaking appropriate set of moral priorities. Yeah, yeah. It was um, it was very strange uh, the how how the events unfolded and and how they were um, reported on. And uh, again, it goes to uh, just how uh, powerful and political um, these issues of. Of sexuality were now what what one other kind of issue in in related would be one of the things that uh that has come from this is uh just how um uh, militant in some ways the uh and, and violent uh the rhetoric coming from the trans community has been and, and it's been going on for well over a year now complete with uh, i hadn't even noticed this had been going on until unfortunately after the shooting and uh, t-shirts with um, uh, AK-47s and uh, the statements protect trans lives at all costs. Um, the lieutenant governor of Minnesota wearing a t-shirt that says protect trans lives and has a big knife on it. Um, Carl, you know, when you put those kinds of images out there and when you say repeatedly, in some cases from the highest political offices in the land, when you say repeatedly that um, there's a genocide going on against yeah. trans persons. Um, uh, it, it shouldn't be surprising that some within uh, the, 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 the quote unquote trans community might act out in defense if genocide is going on. It, it, it really causes one. It ought to cause one to reflect on the responsibility we have for the words we use. Yes, I think that we live in an era of extremely violent rhetoric. Uh, Oddly enough, in in a different context, I was talking to somebody uh, last Friday and they referred to uh, a colleague of mine at Grove City as as the vilest man on the internet. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I was thinking, well, that's interesting because uh, as far as I understand the internet, there are child pornographers operating (laughs) on the internet. There there are Ku Klux Klan people operating on the internet. There are very dangerous. When we start using this sort of hyperbolic rhetoric, Mm -hmm. it can take on a life of its own. And, you know, know, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, well, that's just hyperbolic rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with people who are mentally disturbed in some way, this kind of rhetoric can take on a life of its own. And, and that's mm-hmm. why I think, you know, as, as Christians, we need to be very critical of ourselves yes. as we engage in public discussion, because we need to be careful that, you know, I've often said this about you know, working at religious institutions, they they attract the best of humanity and they ta- attract the craziest of humanity. Sure. Yeah. You know, we need to be careful ourselves that we don't end up playing the polarized uh, rhetorical game. Uh, and I think that that, you know, it, 
clearly the other side, if you want to talk about them in those terms at this point, mm-hmm. uh, their rhetoric seems to know no bounds. Yeah. And, and that's very, very uh, problematic. You know? right. And what, what is a strong word for one person can be picked up and become a deadly action in the hands of another. Well, Carl, when events like this happen, um, it behooves us as Christians to think about and um, to talk about and consider carefully um, the ideas of suffering and grief, uh, sorrow, loss, calamity, because they're very much a part of the world that we live in. And inevitably, when things like this happen, when grotesque uh, examples of of moral uh, evil, of violent wickedness, when these things happen, uh, it prompts a lot of questions, particularly for Christians. Now, I would say if you're if you're a uh, an intellectually consistent atheist, uh, you don't have a whole lot of grounds to spend much time asking why. But if you're a Christian and you do believe that we live in a moral universe where there is justice, um, and where justice will be done, and there is a God who is sovereign and who is good, inevitably. Uh, questions, many of them good questions, are going to be asked. And the church needs to be ready with well-informed, biblical, and thoughtful answers to some of those questions. Uh, And this is nothing new for Christians, is it? I mean, Christians have been uh, asking questions and lamenting uh, suffering, particularly suffering connected to to man-made, man-generated wickedness. Been asking this all of our history, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, you go back to the Psalms, Psalm 73. Mm-hmm. You know, why do the, the good die young and the wicked, you know, die peacefully in their beds full of years? So the, there's a perennial question about the justice, we might say, of the universe and the justice of the God who rules the universe. We think of the book of Job clearly raises these questions in a very, very acute form. Uh, when you move into church history, we have yeah, Boethius in the 6th century, uh, awaiting execution, right, on the consolation of philosophy, really asking, you know, that perennial question, why do really bad things happen to pretty decent good people? So I think the problem of suffering is the fact that it's, these questions have been asked for so long indicates that we're never going to get a fully satisfactory answer right. uh, this side of the, of the eschaton, this side of the end of time. Um, so part of the, the you know, as unsatisfactory as it is, part of uh, the the mystery of evil and suffering is that it is a mystery. It right. is a mystery. Uh, the more immediate question, of course, for us is how should we respond in the immediate aftermath of not not just say a tragedy like a school shooting, but you know the the bereavements of somebody in churches. Right. You know, I, I think a lot of Christians struggle with how to speak to somebody whose life has been devastated mm-hmm. by sometimes uh, we might death from natural causes, other times death from positive wickedness on the part of, yeah. of human beings. Like a lot of Christians struggle with that question. I was struck last week. I was in contact with a couple of the pastors at one of the other big churches in Nashville. And uh, I heard the day after actually from, from our friend of this program, and Nancy Guthrie, how David Filson, one of those pastors, had had done a really good job at a kind of prayer vigil right. uh, on the night that it had happened. And I'm always in awe of men who can do that, mm-hmm. because I, I think myself, I'd be totally out of my depth. 
but it is possible to step into it. I mean, and you taught. I remember a few years ago you had uh, a little uh, boy, I think it was, in your church, killed in devastatingly tragic circumstances. Not not the result of malice, but but an accident. Yeah. Um, how do you? I mean, you have some hands-on experience here. How do you speak to the parents who've lost a young child through yeah. such? silly and ridiculous set of circumstances mm-hmm. one might say yeah I, re- I remember and this goes back to my very first days as a as a senior pastor from what i can remember my very first funeral i ever performed so this would have been when i was about 32 years old um and uh, it was for a child that had that had died in an accident and so these are really really hard times and i know when when our church walked through um, the incident that you reference, um, it was um, it was devastating for us. Uh, this involved people that we that we love, um, who were going through a kind of grief that most of us um, can only observe. We can't directly relate to. Um, and so, in those moments, what you do is you just sit with them on the ash heap, so to speak, and you just weep with them. Um, there are times to speak. Uh, there are times when. When those of us need to speak, there are times when um, our speech needs to just be limited to perhaps opening up some scriptures and reading um, uh, to uh, to give comfort that way. And a lot of it is just um, leaning heavily into the Holy Spirit, if I could say, and and saying, Lord, please keep me from saying anything stupid. Please keep me from being one of Job's bad comforters um one of his bad counselors um and keep me from speaking something that's that's true but not in season at that moment um the other thing that that you get to do and must do as a pastor is is do the bulk of your theology on these issues from the pulpit so that when you are in the hospital room or or in the living room and all around you is the wreckage of a calamity um, you're not having to play a lot of catch up on theology or realizing that, oh goodness, you know, I've never really trained these people to to think well or to pray well in the midst of of this sort of calamity. So that because those moments, those moments are there for you to weep with those who are weeping and to put your arms around someone and to, you know, once once the words can come into your throat, open up and and read a psalm. Um and so, uh, the best kind of care happens in 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 relation to, uh, or or in the context of of those kinds of relationships where you've known these people. It's interesting. Um, just recently, I've I've performed two funerals in a period of about two and a half weeks, and they were very different types of experiences. Both wonderful Christian people, but in very different phases of life. One was a a brother who was in his mid nineties. And uh, just a godly man, the sort of man that that when you see this man in his mid nineties, you, you just hope that you'll be as kind as he is, because you know not all of us age well, Carl. You know, and we. Yeah. But this was just one of those men who who uh, yeah. still in his mid nineties loved the Lord, loved the Bible. Um, and those uh, funerals are easy, you know. Th- oh those yes, are the funerals that I did in my short pastoring, right? Those they were are very the ones straightforward and very easy it, in many ways. In many ways, yes, because all of the family knew this was coming. Um, he'd been in hospice care, you know. We we and and he was at peace. He was at such peace, 
And so when he finally breathed his last, you know, we were able to stand there in his hospital room and sing hymns and to rejoice for him. There were tears because he was such a beloved man, but that's an entirely different sort of thing. That was a, you know, that that really felt like a home going. Um, but, you know, uh, a couple of weeks before that, I, I did the funeral for a dear sister in Christ, um, deeply loved in our church, and she just went far sooner than any of us wanted. Hmm. And and while there was that hope, because um, she she was such a uh, she just loved the Lord and and was such a a wonderful minister within our congregation, uh, uh, just uh, everybody knew her and everybody had had benefited from her kindness and her Christ-likeness. Um, uh, but she went far sooner than, than any of us would have hoped. And so there was a, a rawer kind of grief to that. We were grieving for her husband. We were grieving for her children right. um, in ways that were, that were heartbreaking. And yet we, in those moments, you really do experience what Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica, which is we grieve, but we do not grieve as those without hope. Um, and, and it's in those times, I tell you, I mean, Carl, a long time ago, you and I interviewed, um, a Presbyterian minister, Paul Wolf, who had written a book, um, after he had gone through years of cancer treatment successfully, but for a while it wasn't looking good. And I'll never forget a comment he made to us as we interviewed him and talked about his new book on, on, on suffering in the Christian life. And, and we asked him, you know, what sustained him? throughout those times, you know, he had young kids and he was going through yeah. cancer treatment and it was, it was pretty harrowing. And he said, he said, um, my doctrine came through for me Yeah, and he just leaned into the catechism and to the scriptures in those times and found out the practicality of those timeless truths that we have as Christians. Yeah. It reminds me of the, I think it's the preface to D.A. Carson's book, How Long, O Lord? Mm. But he makes the point there. He said, if you're reading this book in order to try to understand your suffering, you're reading it too late. Yeah, you, know, you, yeah. you need to read this book when you're not suffering so that you have, you know, when you are suffering, it's like when you've got toothache. You don't <laughs> yeah. have time to think about anything else. All you can think about is the toothache. And um, right. there's one thing, I, uh, th- one mistake I think a lot of Christians I've noticed make relative to those who have breathed and grieving, and that is keep their distance because they don't know what to say. Yes. Uh, my my own experience of bereavement and my experience of talking to others bereaved is that's the worst thing of all. Yes. Yeah. Be present. Go up to me. If you don't know what to say, say, I don't know what to say. Exactly. I'm, I, I'm sorry for your loss. I, I will be I'll just be praying for you and trusting that the Lord will use my prayer in some way. Something as simple as that. I, you know, you mentioned Job in what you just said. And yeah, of course, yeah. Job's comforters, they go wrong as soon as they open their mouths. Right. But what they get right is they go and they sit in solidarity with yes. him. Um, that was them at their best. Yeah. Right I mean, not, yeah. not everybody in the church we know well enough to go and sit with. Right. But Physical presence makes a difference, mm-hmm. I think, as well, in times of, of, of bereavement. Yeah. Having somebody, not necessarily who could speak to you, but just being there. Maybe right. just sit there and listen to the other person, uh, letting their heart flood out. I think presence and the indication of concern, even if you don't know what to say, are right. both better than withdrawing, pulling mm-hmm. away. Because you're worried you might embarrass yourself in some way. Right. 
And what I found is that people get so nervous in situations like that, that they'll, they'll make one of two mistakes. They'll, they'll just keep their distance, which please don't do that. Um, or they'll start talking nonstop. And again, please don't do that because as you suggested, um, the person who is going through the loss doesn't need you to talk on and on. In fact, they need you not to talk on and on and on really. I mean, a perfectly fitting response in a time like that is just what you suggested. I don't know what to say, but I love you and I care about you and I'm here. It reminds me of when I did my pastoral internship many, many years ago, going with the minister, I was sort of shadowing to to visit a man in hospital. He got cancer and we knew he'd got just a few days to live. And I remember saying to uh, the pastor I was shadowing, I I don't know what I'm going to say. What what, what should I say? And he said, you say as little as possible. He said, we won't stay for very long because he's too tired anyway. He just wants us to be there. If there's any talking, he said, he'll do the talking, but more than likely we'll go in, we'll sit with him. I'll read the scriptures. We'll pray. We'll depart. Mm -hmm. Um, He said, but you don't have to worry about what to say because he wants somebody to talk to. He doesn't want somebody to talk to him. So, yes, I I couldn't emphasize that more. Uh, uh, I have found that there are times when people who are grieving actually do have a lot to say there for whatever reason. And yeah. just let them, just let them talk and you get it off the listen. chest. Right. Yeah. And then there yeah. are times when they don't have anything to say and it's really okay for there to be yeah. long periods of silence. Yeah. That's where the comforter, you know, that yeah. that's where, where you who are there to comfort the person, that's where yeah. you have to show the restraint to just not say anything. Um, I'm used to being in living rooms or hospital rooms where there are periods of times where nothing is said. And, and again, this just comes from doing it for a long time. Um, but before I leave, you know, I always take time to read and it's almost always a Psalm or some, or, or a Psalm or a, and a portion of Romans eight, um, wrap my arms around them, pray for them. And then, uh, and then I'm on my way. Uh, if, if, if that's appropriate for me yeah. to leave at that point, yeah. some, some visits are long and the periods of silence are long. And, yeah. and again, that's where, if, if, if you're the one that's there to comfort, just be comfortable with moments of silence. Say as little as possible. Let most of your speech, if you speak, uh, be your words of reading um, yeah. a, a, a psalm or a promise from Scripture, yeah. and to pray for him. Yeah. And and that's the comfort. You're you're not. You don't have to worry about whether or not you're awkward. You'll be yeah. awkward if you just keep talking. So yeah. keep that to a minimum, and just know that um you know when when you've got a relationship with someone and you both believe the same things there's a silent dialogue going on you know there's a lot of communication going on that doesn't need to add uh, that doesn't need the help of your mouth at that moment yeah yeah well that's very helpful todd and it's uh it's great to be able to draw on your many years of of pastoral experience to think about these very difficult situations we hope that uh, you listeners have found this uh, practically helpful uh, we do want to offer a giveaway. If you go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, uh, you can enter to win a copy of Mark Talbot, guest on this program, uh, Mark Talbot's book, When the Stars Disappear, which is uh, an extremely good book on reflecting upon uh, the nature of suffering and the power of the gospel to confront and to handle suffering. If you don't, win a copy. I strongly urge you to buy a copy because I think 
when we're talking about drawing deeply on doctrine, Mark Talbot's work on suffering, which arises out of much suffering in his own life, is extremely helpful. Uh, otherwise, all that remains is to thank you for listening and to say that we look forward to being with you next time. Mama whispered softly, time will ease your pain. Life's about changing, nothing ever stays the same. And she said, how can I help you to say goodbye? It's okay to hurt, and it's okay to cry. Come let me hold. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, President of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful.